Good morning. Turn with me to either page 954 in the Bibles we have here or in your Bibles, Colossians chapter 1, looking today at verses 21 to 23. A couple months ago, we um, got some drone footage of the facility here. A couple places we're using it is on our YouTube channel and uh, some other videos we did. It's kind of fun to look at drone footage because you get a different perspective of something you've always been looking at this way. Suddenly you see it from on top. This passage today is talking about our salvation, and we probably have to admit that most of the time we think about our salvation from our perspective. What did God do that affected us and changed us? We can know our sins are forgiven. We can know that the moment we die, we will be forever in heaven with him because of the salvation he provided through Christ. That will be obvious today in our study as well. But what we get, I think, that's unique is God's perspective more than just our perspective. What was he doing and why? So we are going to look at two key words. One of them is right in the text. It's the word reconciliation. And that is describing how God saved us. It was by reconciling us to him. But then the second key term we want to think about today is the word transformation because that explains or describes why God saved us. Reconciliation is how he did it. But transformation, from God's perspective, that's why he did it. Chapter 1, verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. To present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. If you just notice a little bit that key term, in his sight, or you may have the term before him. This is, this is his goal, is that we would be holy in his sight. But the first issue is reconciliation. Although sin makes us enemies of God, He reconciled us through Christ. Actually, in the Greek text, the first term is the terms and you. So it really is a focus on what God did for you, but this is how he did it from his perspective. He did it for something that would be changed in his perspective. And you, so you, residents of Colossae, A.D., about A.D. 60, he's writing here. Port Washington, Cedar Grove, Fredonia, uh, Random Lake. It's, 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 it's you. This is your story if you are a believer in Christ. I can almost hear, if Paul were speaking this verbally, a little bit incredulous, kind of surprising that you were reconciled considering your opposition to God. Something changed. It's almost like imagining that a Seahawks fan this evening would start cheering for the Packers at halftime. I hope that would be a good idea if that turns out. What could change? What could make you change sides? 
You were reconciled. That's the main verb in this long sentence that we are studying in these three verses. The word reconciled was introduced to us already in verse 20 in our study last week about how God will bring reconciliation or peace really to the entire creation because of Christ's redemptive work. So that's kind of like the broad sweep. Everything about the universe is going to be different because of God's love for mankind on this planet and shown to us through Christ. That's the broad sweep. But now it's like in verse 21, he's saying, but what about you? You were alienated. You were hostile, or you may have the word enemies. You were evil. Do you suppose those terms, alienated, enemy, and evil, were just a little bit offensive when they first heard this letter from Paul read in the Colossian church meeting, probably in the upper room of Philemon's house? Did they look around after the reader is reading about alienated enemies, hostile, evil, and go, you know, is he, is he maybe talking about some of us who were like former bandits uh, or drunkards in first century? Nope, he seems to be talking about all of us. Probably some pretty nice people in the room, aliens, enemies, evil. What if, what if when Pastor Seth was here earlier, he had greeted you by saying, welcome aliens, enemies, and evil people. But to be fair, actually, that's not how Paul did it either. Look at verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. To the holy and faithful brothers in Christ, or saints. Clearly, something has changed. This is describing their past. Their present is that they are holy and faithful brothers. They are like, they are, that's the word saints means holy. So, Something has changed. We were on the wrong side of God, and we needed reconciliation. The term alien means foreigner or different. You and I were so spiritually different, opposite, on the wrong side, on the other side of God, because God is holy, completely without blemish, completely without fault. And so we're supposed to feel in these terms some spiritual tension because we see ourselves in our past the way God saw us. Going back to the um, Old Testament, God, or the Lord, looks down from heaven. Get the drone view here of, of God. The Lord looks down, looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have, how many? All turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So he's very clear of what we were like. We are all sinners, or the term, the passage we may be more acquainted with in Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And again, that's describing uh, essentially a synonym for the word holy. All of us fall short. If you happen to be a believer in Christ here and your testimony is that before you came to faith in Christ, you had some pretty rough years where you knew, maybe your family knew, uh, maybe even the law knew that you, uh, you had some guilt. You might uh, more easily embrace this description of your past, alienated, hostile, enemies, evil. But what if that's not your testimony? What if, what if your testimony is a little bit more like mine? 
I was raised in a believing home, attempting to be Christ-honoring and taught about the truths of Scripture. And um, I was actually a much more compliant child than my older brother because uh, I, I saw his consequences, and I, I determined there's a lot of things I wouldn't do. And so I think I was a pretty good child, but I needed to be reconciled. And for me, that happened at age six, and so I don't have this story of all the things God saved me from except who knows what I would have been without being reconciled to Christ. So is this talking about the rebellious law-breaking people or the good little boys? Yes. Both, all, have sinned and fall short. So we all begin life alienated from God. And if that offends you, I'm not sorry, because we have to understand that. We have to embrace our inherent hostility to God. As most of you know, a couple months ago, if I had denied the results of an MRI that I got that told me I had a pituitary tumor, I could have said, uh, nah, I don't want a surgery. And that thing would still be there, waiting to cause damage. If I denied my problem, there would be no solution. In fact, I had no symptoms, and so it was kind of hard to believe what the doctor said. But an otherwise uh, routine MRI revealed there was a problem that would eventually cause me problems. And so that brought me to a place where just before the surgery, I was willing to sign one of those forms. You done that? Where suddenly, though the doctor had said this would be a great thing, suddenly I signed a piece of paper that had absolutely all warnings and no promises. But I signed it. Spiritually, we have to admit we are in eternal danger because God is holy and there will in fact be eventual and eternal consequences of all sin, any sin. Good little boys, criminals, teenagers, older adults alike. And so we have to sign the permission form that admits who we are and what we need. But that's where the spiritual story is so much better because unlike those surgery permission forms, God's word about reconciliation is all guaranteed promises. If we believe in Christ and Christ alone, he will reconcile us. So how does he do it? Verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. He is bringing reconciliation through death. Our past is that we were alienated, hostile enemies, evil people in our minds, but now he has reconciled us. But now there's a difference. Diagnosis was sin. Prognosis was eternal judgment. But now you are reconciled. I want you to notice a couple of grammatical details that we inherently understand as we read, hopefully. But whether you ever paid attention in English grammar or not, the term reconciled is both past tense and passive voice. Let me just explain the significance of that 
in terms of reconciliation. Passive voice is describing who did it and who received it. Passive. We do not reconcile ourselves to God. God reconciles us even though we are the guilty ones. We were reconciled by whom? By God. We cannot accomplish our reconciliation. He did it all by himself. What's amazing about this compared to any human conflict, because reconciliation is about conflict. We have a problem with God. God has a problem with us. Any human conflict, if someone has hurt you, offended, cheated, abused, bullied, whatever it is, you, what should they do? They should come to you. They, they caused the problem. They should come to you and reconcile. Did God do anything wrong? Nothing. But he came to us. And so it really is as if we slapped God in the face, but God lovingly came to us to reconcile. Let that sink in. If you're going to understand salvation, you have to understand grace. And this is grace to think that the holy, sinless God came to fix the problem that the sinful one, you and me, caused. He reconciled us. And so in that sense, we were passive. Secondly, it is past tense. Reconciliation has, the word has is missing, has happened when we believed, not when we get to heaven. It is done. It has been accomplished. It's not waiting until we get to heaven and then finally we will be reconciled. Reconciliation is therefore a status that is already granted. It has been granted in spite of our sin. So passive, God did it. Past tense, he already did it, even though we are still sinners. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is a very important understanding because it is directly opposite of what our religious world, friends, maybe relatives and neighbors might believe. Because in spite of the goodness of any person ascribing to any religion, it is dead wrong and one is spiritually dead if they do not know and cannot embrace and understand this concept of who we were and who fixed the problem. There are a couple of obstacles to understanding reconciliation. Jesus Christ is an obstacle. Jesus Christ was described by Isaiah, Isaiah 8.14, as a stumbling block. And two or three times in the New Testament, that's picked up uh, by Peter and by Paul both, that Christ is like a stumbling block. It's like offensive. What could be the stumbling block? What could be the obstacle to understanding something so great as the reconciliation that God provided through Christ on the cross? The first obstacle is this. The idea that I'm not a sinner or I'm not that bad of a sinner. If a person doesn't see themselves as a sinner who needs to be saved, they cannot be saved. 
Unless a drowning man admits they're drowning, they will not seek a lifesaver and grab onto it. What causes this is a core issue of pride. I'm not that bad. The second issue, similar, is that people say, okay, I know, I make mistakes. Okay, call it sin. But it's this idea, I will fix my sin problem myself by being good enough. I will compensate for it. You know what the issue is again? The very same thing. The issue is pride. We cannot fix our problem. We should not try because a problem as big as sin can only be fixed by God himself. And he did. Past tense. Passive voice. How did he do it? He did it by Christ's physical body, or the word flesh, through death. So this is pointing us to the true humanity of Jesus. So keep in mind, this is telling about salvation from God's perspective. And if it seems surprising to any of us to think that the cross and what happened there 2,000 years ago would be responsible for our salvation, if that seems amazing to us, imagine how incredulous this plan, incredible this plan was to Almighty God when he conceived of it. That he would create man. He would create man who would have free will. Free will, they would sin. And so in God's mind, that his plan would be that he would fix that sin problem to be able to have an eternal relationship with us. And the way he would do it is that he would become human and he would die. How crazy would that have been? How phenomenally, amazingly different than the way you think God would think. Because God is not man and God does not die. But he says, I'll become man and I will die. It's like God violated his own infinite characteristics in order to have a relationship with us. We've just read and studied the last couple of weeks in verses 15 through 20 about the supremacy of Christ in that he was truly, this man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago was truly and fully God. He created all things. He sustains all things. And in fact, it says in verse 19 that God was pleased to have all of his fullness or deity dwell in him. So Jesus truly was fully God, but now we have to look back at the other side of the coin and realize he was also fully man because when it says at the end of verse 20 that he made peace through his blood shed on the cross, that's real blood, that's human blood. He died a real physical death, but it was a distinctly different physical death. You and I could not die for one another's sins. But he was the Holy One, the Supreme God in the flesh would die to pay for the guilt of our sin. Of course, the rest of that story has already been told in verse 18 that he did not stay dead because he's called the firstborn from the dead, meaning he is the first one to be eternally, permanently resurrected thereby guaranteeing that we can be as well. How did Jesus dying remove that hostility, that barrier, that, and accomplish that reconciliation? Glance ahead to where we'll study sometime later in verse chapter 2, verse uh, 13 and 14. End of verse 13, it says, He forgave 
us all our sins. How? Having canceled the written code with its regulations that were against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. So all the sins of you and me and the Colossians, even the sins of people like Judas or Hitler, those who would reject, those who would would refuse the grace of God, all the sins of all the world, God so loved the world, all the world, that he gave his son to die on the cross. And so, 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God, passive, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us or on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. That is the scope of reconciliation. Or as Peter put it simply, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might, now he's getting to the why, die to sin and live to righteousness. So he took our punishment, past tense, passive voice, God did it. We were alienated. We were enemies. We hate to hear it maybe until we realize only then will we appreciate the grace of God. Came across a great quote this week from a book I have about grace. It's actually a book about sin. But this is what he writes. To speak of grace without sin is to trivialize the cross of Jesus Christ. What had we thought the ripping and writhing on Golgotha were all about? To speak of grace without looking squarely at these realities, without painfully honest acknowledgement of our own sin and its effects, is to shrink grace. For the sober truth is that without full disclosure on sin, the gospel of grace becomes impertinent, unnecessary, and finally uninteresting. But grace is anything but unnecessary or uninteresting. It is essential. Grace is amazing. Now, Paul was writing to um, believers in Christ And it's kind of interesting that he does not even tell us what we must do to respond to the reconciling work of Christ. In this context, he doesn't even tell us. He doesn't talk about faith in Christ. He anticipates he is writing to people who have placed their faith in Christ. I don't want to assume that everyone studying with us is aware of the fact that we need to respond we have a choice to make in response to what he has done for us. In the almost parallel epistle that, or letter that Paul wrote from prison, the same time he wrote to the Colossians, he wrote to the Ephesians, and he uh, includes in his description this crucial element that reconciliation with God comes by faith. It's a gift and not earned. So Ephesians 2, 8, 9 say, For by grace you have been saved... Through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So realize that the reconciling work of Christ demands that we respond. And so some will reject the grace of God, and we must respond if we can acknowledge, if we will acknowledge our true enemy status, hostile to God because of all sin, any sin. Then we, in humility, not pride, will acknowledge and embrace by faith what Christ accomplished on the cross. So we are, by grace, freely, that means no merit of our own, saved by faith. He's describing faith in Christ. It's not your own doing. It's a gift. It's not a result of works. So we are forced to think about this issue of what does it mean to have your faith in Christ? So what are you trusting in? That's the issue of faith. What are you trusting or depending on for eternal life, for reconciliation? Are you trusting in what Christ did or works that you do? That is, that is where the roads diverge. Are you trusting in you? Are you trusting in what God did for you through Christ? So I want you to be very clear and to understand. And if you have not placed your faith in Christ and what he accomplished for you, you can do that while we're thinking, talking, studying. Your mind can decide to put your faith in Christ and Christ alone. And you will no longer be an enemy Your sin will no longer be a barrier. You will be at peace with God. And so the promise for us is that we can enjoy our reconciliation, knowing that God is not angry at us, even though our sin is not all gone in daily life. Our sin is fully punished and eliminated, erased, eradicated from our record forever. He's not going to judge your sin. Why? Because he judged Christ for your sin. So if you have placed your faith in Christ, I praise God with you. But please, please, please keep reading. How did he do it? He reconciled us through the death of Christ. Why did he do this for us? What is God's perspective on why he saved us? From our perspective, we know our sins are forgiven and we'll be in heaven. From God's perspective, why did he do it? He did it. Middle of verse 22, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. So the purpose of reconciliation between us and God was for transformation of our life. Now, as you read that, it might raise some question marks, and it explains why there are a couple different viewpoints on what does this mean? That his purpose in saving of us was to present you holy if you continue. So some have read this and decided that heaven is in doubt. We must not be saved if we don't live holy enough and don't continue firm enough in our faith. That's false. Because to believe that would be to invalidate everything we just studied. That we were reconciled by God 
It was done by him. It would, it, would, it would invalidate what we just saw in Ephesians. We're saved by faith and not by works. So let's just drop that view like a hot potato. Some have read this, that we would be presented holy and say that means we will be perfectly holy positionally. That means in our status in heaven. So that it would be saying that we will be perfectly holy in our position in heaven. That is true. But I don't think it's the main point here. It's part of the point. But there is something that is conditional when it says that you would be holy in his sight if you continue. It's a true conditional sentence. So what is it saying? I believe it's describing this, that God saved us to continually grow us in holiness as we mature in our faith. God saved us to continually transform us. Something is conditional. Eventually we will be holy. When, our sin, when we die, we become instantly in the presence of God. Our sin nature falls off. No more sin in heaven. That's a piece of this. But what Paul is emphasizing here is that God is right now in the process of making us holy because he wants to, do you see that term? He wants to present us holy. We will someday be presented to him holy. Yes, fully holy. But God is honored by the process by which he makes us holy. Look ahead just to verse 28, what it says there. We proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. We need to prepare to be presented more mature and more holy. So Paul is going to be moving in the next passage to his, his whole passion for ministry is to help people prepare for this presentation by becoming more mature. In that passage that, of which this is an example of, of marriage, really. But the purpose of Christ as our, as a head of the church is to, he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. What is Christ doing in his church right now? What is God doing? What is Christ doing in your life right now is he is doing this. He wants to present you without spot or wrinkle. Will we become sinless? No. But he is in the process of doing that. Second Peter three fourteen. Therefore, beloved, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. So there's something on our plate that we have to be diligent about pursuing holiness and growing in our faith. We need help on that. So in Jude 24, we read, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Do you see a process here? This is what the Christian life is about. This is why you're still here instead of in heaven. This is the process that we sometimes call discipleship, that we would not stay where we are and say, well, I've got my ticket to heaven. Good for me. Now I'm going to go live my life for myself. Because that was never his purpose. His purpose was to make us holy. And so someday we need to think clearly about the future 
We will someday be presented to Christ. And I believe this is concurrent. This, this is part of what is, is elsewhere referred to as the judgment seat of Christ. But please be clear. The judgment seat of Christ, that is for believers, is not about us being judged to decide who's going to go to heaven. That's already secure. But rather, this presentation is when God sees and rewards the progress we have made in holiness. This is when we can hear from God, well done. Good and faithful servant. And so what God had in mind when he designed this incredible plan of reconciliation is not just that we would be there someday in heaven, but that in spite of living in a sinful world with a sin nature still functioning, we would actually grow in holiness and become more like him. There is nothing that could please him more. That was God's design. How's that working for God in each of our lives? Can you imagine the thrill of you and God enjoying the fruit of the faithful work he's done in your life by giving you the Holy Spirit to see and enjoy the progress towards holiness that you have made. So what is that process? Verse 23. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope, which really is a confidence held out in the gospel. Are you continuing in your faith? Are you still growing? Peter said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Is that your goal for 2020? To grow. That's God's plan. God didn't save us only to enjoy us in heaven. He saved us to enjoy our progress in holiness on earth. Sometimes as a parent, it's so painful watching the progress, right? Couldn't I just fast forward to just their mature 21-year-olds? They love me. I love them. It's all. You've thought that, right? (laughs) But you really don't want to miss all 18, 21 years. As hard as it is, the struggle. But you see those glimpses of, 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 of maturity and They actually sometimes care for their brother or sister and that becomes essential to the reward and you don't want to just be handed, just trust me, you don't want to just be handed a mature 21-year-old. And God wants to enjoy this process. So continue, establish and firm, not move from the confidence of the gospel. The word gospel means what? Good news? The good news of the gospel does not stop When we put our faith in Christ, it's just started. It's phenomenally good to know that we have eternal life in heaven. But that's just the beginning of how good the news is. Here's the impact of the gospel after you are saved. Because the gospel of God's grace is what will motivate, empower the transformed life. Romans 12 Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to stop there. 
What's Paul been talking about? For 11 chapters in the book of Romans. Our salvation. I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, the previous 11 chapters, to offer your bodies, which means your lives, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Not talking about heaven. Talking about this life. This is your true and proper worship. This is what worship is about. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we're going to, have to think different. We're going to, our mind has to begin to think like God thinks. Remember, this is salvation from God's perspective. Embrace God's perspective of salvation. That's the first step, but embrace God's perspective of the Christian life often called sanctification, which means growing in our likeness or holiness towards God. So we've got to look at the world and say, I don't want to do that anymore. And to look at the pattern of Scripture and say, that's what I want to do. That's the goal I want to have. But it'll take a renewing of our mind, our perspective, a, a God's eye view of life. In view of God's mercy. Be a living sacrifice. The term sacrifice for the Jewish people would always, or really anybody in that day, you envision dead animals. That's what sacrifice worship was all about. Even in pagans, kill animals. So this was radical. This was to say we would be a living sacrifice. The sheep on the altar throughout the Old Testament era in the Old Covenant for thousands of years had no choice but to die. And because they were picturing the importance of God showing his wrath on sin until Christ came, that aroma was actually, it says in the Old Testament, pleasing to God. How much more would our diligent pursuit of growth, maturity, progress, holiness, be pleasing to God when now with new life in Christ, we would pursue him. How's it going to happen? With a clear view of God's mercy. What motivates transformation is grace. What's the alternative that's often used Unfortunately, by Christians against Christians, I think, to try to motivate holiness. Guilt. Does guilt motivate long-term transformation? How's it work for you? No, but grace does. God saved us by grace to motivate us by his mercy. When we begin to understand the fullness of what he did for us, realize that he sees us as friends, not enemies, no matter what, He forgave you. We begin to understand the purpose of God. His mercy was meant to transform us. That you might be holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Or you may have the term above reproach. That's a term describing that should be the goal of every every man. Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3. To be above reproach. God uses every stage of life, every circumstance to show us 
our need for his grace. And it draws us back constantly to this truth. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And there are plenty of things in our lives that will make us condemn ourselves or listening to the condemnation of others. And so we have to constantly go back to the mercy of God and say, no, I have no condemnation in light of God's mercy. Now, I want to be a living sacrifice. I want to please God. It's a transformed viewpoint. And so God will use everything going on in your life to somehow be at work in that transforming work. He's going to use every circumstance. If we resist and stall the process, and we've all had stages in which we did, God is patient, but he's persistent. And so he will continue to work to keep the process going. God even uses our sin. God lets our sin cause us pain, which gets our attention, in order to get back on track pursuing his purpose in saving us. So if there is sin causing pain, and there's other things that cause pain, sinful world, disease, all kinds of other people's sin. But if you know that there's something in your life that is causing you pain, that you own, addictive sin, attitude sins, bitterness, uh, pride that annoys the people around you, or um, anything, it's covered by God's grace. It does not nullify the truths of reconciliation. But you go back and realize there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And he saved me so I'd be a living sacrifice so that I could please him. That would be my life of worship. And as grace fills our heart, now we seek and desire. our trans- We have a transformed mind that wants to please him. That's the process that God is in. If you, if you know a Christian pretty well, who you would say is joyful and growing, and I hope you know a lot of them. Do you think that person is focused on God's grace or God's, or, or rather their own guilt? They know they're sinners. I think they're focused on God's grace. And so if you see them treating people graciously, forgiving freely, not holding grudges, living generously, not selfishly, not critical, not gossiping. I think you are meeting someone who is in that process of being transformed by God's grace and mercy. The power of the good news, the gospel, is not just to keep us out of hell and deliver us to heaven, but rather that day by day, season by season, we would become more holy, more blameless, as a, as a way of worshiping the one for what, who, who, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And so Paul in the last line says, this is the good news that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. He's saying, I am just thrilled to be able to represent Christ and his grace. Because grace not only changes our destiny, it changes our lives. So wherever you are on the journey, being transformed by God's grace is a journey, isn't it? You are exactly where God wants you to be right now in the journey. But now is the time to say, I want to be 
not just saved by grace, but utterly transformed by it. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this passage that points to your very one-sided love for us. That you, through the reconciling work, incredibly, of the sinless one dying for sin, would change forever our status in heaven, but permanently enable us for continual change throughout our life. Help us to embrace the reality of our sin, but then the incredible truth of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.